Greetings to the brightest audience in the country, and welcome to Theology Thursday. I'm Nicole McBurney. Every weekday, we bring you the news of the day, the culture, and science from a Christian worldview. But today, join me and Pastor Bob Enyart as we explore the source of our Christian worldview, the Bible. Please open your Bibles. We're in the story of Gideon. Open your Bibles to Judges, the book of Judges, chapter 7, verse 1. God has appeared to Gideon and told him that God would use him to deliver Israel from their Midianite oppressors. The Midianites, remember, were descendants of Abraham through his wife Keturah. The Midianites lived to the east of the Jordan River, and so they would come in in massive numbers to plunder the Israelites. They'd cross the Jordan River and wreak havoc upon the people. So Judges chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, his new name, the enemy of Baal, Jeroboam and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. So the stage is set. There is a massive army of Midianites and Amalekites, as we'll see. And Gideon has his men, those who responded to his call. And Gideon's people are beside the well of Herod. And when they were there, that wasn't the name of the well. This well was named after the events of this chapter. And in a few minutes, we'll get to why it was named Herod. And the bad guys, the Midianites, they were on the north side of them by the hill of Mora. And this Mora was located in, try to picture Israel, central Israel, a bit to the north. And perhaps you recall the Valley of Jezreel. And that valley is also referred to as the location of the final battle in the book of Revelation of Armageddon. Because there's a city there, now it's a tell, It's just a heap of ruins called Megiddo. And it had been built and destroyed. Every time it was built, starting a few thousand years before Christ, it would be destroyed. Every time it was built, it was destroyed 25 times. And so finally, in the 300s before Christ, they gave up. They abandoned it. They never rebuilt Megiddo. So that's the location of the Midianite hordes and Gideon's forces. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So Gideon had 32,000 fighting men that responded to the call. And this would have been a complete mix of men from the courageous to the ones who were typical guys who were just caught up in the national call and even to the coward who was embarrassed into enlisting, if you will. So I had quite a mix of men. So Gideon has 32,000 men and God said something to him that must have stunned him to his core. God said, you have too many people. Too many? How can you have too many people in a battle? 
But God's point was direct. If you defeat the Midianites with too many people, then Israel could turn that very victory into an excuse to ignore God, to hide the truth that he gave them the victory. And they could brag and convince themselves that they have salvation by their own hand. And notice the nature of this claim. We are strong in our own might. We defeated the Midianites. Notice how God explains that kind of claim. He says that would be a claim against me, against God. Whoa. When we sin, every sin, no matter who it is or who it's aimed at, every sin is against God. Whether or not there is another immediate victim. Someone whose car is stolen is not the only victim. If your car is stolen, you're a victim of a criminal, of a crime. But the offense is also committed against God. And this goes for all sin, including pride. We know that pride goes before a fall, but we must also remember that pride is a sin against God. Not only are we puffing ourselves up and setting ourselves up for failure, but we are stealing something that is not ours. We are stealing the true honor and recognition that is God's. And so that is why pride is so destructive because we're stealing from God. Verse 3. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people saying whoever is fearful and afraid let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Oh man. 22,000 soldiers leave before the battle even began. Now, just a quick geographic note. It says, depart from Mount Gilead. And that seems unusual because the Midianites, they were from east of the Jordan, right? You have Israel and on the other side, you have Jordan and Syria. Well, east of the Jordan is where Mount Gilead is, but they're not over there in Jordan. They're in Israel by Megiddo and the Jezreel Valley. So why does it say depart from Mount Gilead? Well, I was wondering that, and there are not very many good answers to that that could be found. But as I was searching, I came across a book written in 1850 by a rabbi, Joseph Schwartz, A Descriptive Geography of Palestine. So he wrote that book over 150 years ago and he wrote it from Jerusalem. And you know how I could find that book? Well, I'm thankful to this company called Google. (laughs) Even though Google is run by people who are enemies of God, still they do some things that help in our fight against the wicked because truth is quite a tool to be used by those who promote what is right. And Google is spending a billion dollars to go through many of the great libraries of the world, a billion dollars to scan all their books. Many of these books are rare books, one-of-a-kind books, and put them entire books on the Internet. So here is this scholarly 
book from 157 years ago that I would sure never be able to find. And I'm reading in this book, this Rabbi Schwartz, he has some fascinating historical information and he concludes that there was a place named Mount Gilead on the west of the Jordan and it had changed its name to Julud, from Gilead to Julud in the centuries since this time of Gideon. And so it's really neat to be able to research and study and look and find that there is a world of information that's available at our fingertips if only we choose to look. Well, getting back to the story, 22,000 soldiers left before the battle even began and realize how strong a fighting force 22,000 men are. But these were fearful men. Scripture says that perfect love cast out fear. And God wants his people to take courage, not to be cowardly. So not only is God's winnowing fan useful in the long term, but even in the short term, because God says, you know, you got too many people, they're going to claim victory for themselves. So tell everybody who's afraid to leave. And you got 22,000 cowards left. All the better. Recall the story of soldiers in a communist country. Now, this story, I believe to be an obvious urban myth, a Christian myth, but it's a neat story. These soldiers entered an illegal church while a small service was underway, and they pulled their guns and said, whoever wants to deny Christ, leave. And so about half the group ran out. And then the soldiers put down their guns and they said, we're Christians too. Now that the phonies are gone, let's worship the Lord. That's a neat story. Now, I don't believe it has any basis in fact, but it makes a great point. The same point being made here in Judges chapter 7 by God. Let the cowards go. Let the cowards go. We need to fight this battle for victory And you can't do that when people are afraid of their own shadows. Ken Scott likes to quote the scripture, the wicked flee when no man pursues. So we need to have the courage that someone who knows the living God will have. David was not afraid of Goliath. He said, who are these uncircumcised Philistines? Who cares? how big they are, how strong they are, what weapons they have. We have God. We trust in God. Verse 4, But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. There's 10,000 now. The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And if whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And it's generally said that this water was a stream. It could also have been the well that it says they were encamped by a well. And the name of the well was Herod. Well, that well got its name after this event because that means fearful. 
So this was the well of the fearful. So this is where the 22,000 had been told, if you're afraid, leave, and they left. So the well of the fearful. And so then the Lord said, well, there's still too many of you. So bring the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. So if you get down on your knees to drink, or if you lap the water like a dog would, then God says, set them apart and I'll tell you what to do next. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. Wow. So God has winnowed down this force to only 300 men against the Midianite and Amalekite forces are not numbered, but they're described as locusts on the land. So easily they could have been a 100,000 fighting men. God chose these men for what reason? Well, he wanted a small number. And he could have selected that small number in many ways, but he chose this way of how would they drink? Now, he could have said, okay, Gideon, tell them to count off by 33s. And then when they're done, everybody with the number 1 through 32, go home. And everybody with the number 33, stay. He could have done that, but he didn't. He chose this rather colorful method. And it has been observed that this was a military encampment. And the man who cupped the water and brought it up to his mouth, that man was aware of his surroundings. He was concerned about keeping watch. Whereas the man who lapped the water like a dog was showing a lack of regard for the danger of the moment. As was he who got down on his knees, regardless of how he drank, these men would be more vulnerable to attack. They wouldn't have their buddies back. They'd be less able even to defend themselves. So God can save by many or he can save by few. But that doesn't mean that he has no concern about the kind of people he works through. Equipped, armed, committed to the task, not a sloucher, not a dud, but a fighter, alert to the enemy, competent, professional, wise as serpents. That's the kind of person that God wants to work with. You know, not many wise not many wealthy, not many powerful. In fact, we are fools. In fact, we are fools for Christ's sake. But he doesn't want us to stay fools. He doesn't want us to stay weak. He wants us to become strong and mighty through him. Verse 8, Judges chapter 7, verse 8. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands. And he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. 
Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. So Gideon and his servant snuck down at night and they went to the outskirts of the camp and outpost and they were eavesdropping, listening in. Verse 12. Now the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, There was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell over and the tent collapsed. He's horrified by this nightmare that they were being destroyed by a loaf of bread. And that's just the crack up to me. The wicked flee when no man pursues. And yeah, yeah, this loaf of bread is after us. What, Jason? (laughs) Carbohydrates are bad. Simple carbs, you want to stay away from them. Protein, complex carbohydrate. Verse 14, Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Now, how did they know the name of the guy who's heading up the forces against them? Well, because there were fearful men among the Israelites and the Midianites would come and grab somebody along the road and say, what's going on? Tell us. And they tell them because they were afraid. And this soldier in the Midianite camp, he was explaining this dream and he and his companion understood exactly what was going on and God helped them to understand. This is what's happening. You guys are in big trouble. So God put fear into the hearts of the Midianites such that they were even afraid of a loaf of bread in a dream. Verse 15. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He praised God. He was so thankful. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. There are parallels with the pro-life work we do here at Denver Bible Church and Colorado Right to Life and American Right to Life. And we take some event in the news, someone we are working against and they show a sign of weakness and that encourages us and we thank the Lord and we press on even harder and we see that Gideon had guts and trusted in the Lord to hear a man tell this story of a bad dream and to take courage from that. Now, does this mean that we as Christians should go about asking people what are their dreams and then interpreting them? So we could figure out the future, what's going to happen. 
Well, of course not. But I want to tell you just briefly about a friend of ours who has been a longtime friend for many years, but sadly is in a superstitious church. And this friend is excited that the pastor of the church, big church, has given her permission to begin teaching a weekly class. And we just found out about this yesterday, that a friend of the last 20 years is going to start teaching a class on the interpretation of dreams. So people in the church, they'll go to the class and they'll say, here's what I dreamt, and then they'll get the interpretation. Now, some people have their palms read, and others read and find out what the Zodiac has in store for them, their horoscope. And now you can bring your latest dream to a Christian church and have it interpreted for you. This is all the same thing. There were extraordinary things that happened in the Bible which do not happen to everyone. There are many people in Scripture, including, say, the apostles, who didn't interpret dreams. That was a rather rare occurrence. Men like Gideon, Daniel, and Joseph interpreted dreams specially given by God during a very few times of biblical history. And it's a basic misapplication of Scripture to think that every dreamer had a message from God. Just imagine how sick some of those messages would be if they're coming from God. They very well could come from your pepperoni pizza, the dreams you're having, or from a movie you watched you shouldn't have watched. And then we're going to interpret it as though this is a message from God. That is not spirituality, but superstition, the stuff of mysticism and the occult. Now, verse 16. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. Hmm. That's a strange way to outfit your, your troops. What's going on here? Trumpets and pitchers and torches and torches inside the pitchers. Where are the weapons? Swords, bows, spears, loaves of bread, <laughs> shields. Where are the weapons? Well, this is what Gideon said. Verse 17. He said to his 300 men, he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So that was the plan. 300 men are all going to blow trumpets. Now, normally in an army, you might have somebody blowing a trumpet. What? One trumpeteer for every how many men? I don't know. I didn't construct you know, the formation of armies back then. But I would think you want most of your men to have weapons. And so maybe one guy blowing a trumpet for every 500 men or... A thousand men? I don't really know. But if you have 300 men in the dark coming around the enemy camp, 300 trumpets blowing, you could see how the enemy might think there are 300,000 soldiers right at their doorstep. And that, added with the barley bread dream, that could really cause terror. And 
that is strategy, right? And it it exploits the weakness of the enemy, their fear, their overreaction, their lack of trusting in God and wisdom. And as we work in the pro-life movement, we try to use strategy. We try to outwit the mighty and the wealthy, the powerful, and also the security guards at Planned Parenthood would try to outwit them too. And I think of this one rescue we had that was so interesting. We had not the hundreds that we had had at some rescues. We only had about 80 people who were willing to sit down in front of the doors of the abortion clinic and close it down. So there were many security guards. There were police. It was a difficult time. And so how do you get your 80 people onto the property in front of the door? You don't want to fight people. We believe that we should do all this with nonviolence, peacefully. So we have the regular protesters at 20th and Vine early on a Saturday morning, about 7 o'clock. And we have 80 rescuers one block away lined up along the sidewalk where nobody could be seen and silently they parked blocks away and walked and assembled 80 people and they're waiting from a sign there's somebody on the corner somebody else on the corner and they're waiting for a sign to come to the abortion clinic and the plan was as soon as the first car drove up to bring a woman in to be have her baby killed at that moment the regular protesters who were there would fall to the ground in the driveway and block the car. So that's what happened. They fell to the ground, and it looked like there was a rescue at the driveway. So the security guards, the cops who were there, they rushed to the driveway. People came out from the clinic. They all rushed. They're taking their pictures. And meanwhile, silently, 80 people come in and sit down in front of the door. And not a one of them saw what was happening. Not a one. We were sitting there. We thought... Should we start singing? How do we let them know we're here? And they turn around and they were in shock that here we are and their clinic is shut down for the day. Praise the Lord. Because it takes a long time to get 80 people away from the front of a door if they don't want to leave. And so that was a neat rescue. But that was one example of a thousand rescues all over the country where tactics and strategy, just brilliant things were done, courageous things were done. I remember in Washington, D.C., there were thousands of Christians rescuing at just a few abortion clinics. And so at this one abortion clinic, there were literally over a thousand Christians there to say this clinic is not going to be open today. Well, the police came with great numbers. They brought buses. They had plastic handcuffs. They tied them real tightly. And they put you all in a pile because when you're dealing with a thousand people, that's hard to do. And they're pulling up buses and they're loading people onto the prisoner transport vehicles, the buses. So some of the leaders gave an instruction to those who had already been arrested and handcuffed. Roll. Don't run. Don't threaten anybody. But just roll on the ground under the buses. So 50 Christians roll under the buses. So now the police have the buses that became part of the rescue. Because the buses can't move. So nobody's moving in or out. You know, it's just fun. Now, I do thank God that we live in America 
where if you did this in Germany to try to save Jews, that wouldn't be a problem. They'd just shoot you all and you'd all be dead. And so here in America, it's a lot easier. There are risks, but it's not like in the Soviet Union or China or so many other places. Okay, so let's continue. Verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Hey, this is Nicole McBurney, and we are out of time for today, so be sure to come back next Thursday to finish off this study. And just a quick reminder that the Plot Second Edition is now available for anybody who wants it. Just go to kgov.com, that's kgov.com, and you'll see a big banner at the top of the screen that says Plot Second Edition. Click on that, and it'll take you to the store where you can get your copy today. Thank you so much for listening, and don't forget to tune in tomorrow for Real Science Radio with Fred Williams. God bless.